Um, I uh, come walking by, there's a little garage over here, and there's a van in the garage parking lot. Uh, before I tell this story, does anybody here drive a white, like, Ford Econoline van for some company that... Okay, good, I don't want to insult anybody. But I'm, I'm walking by, and he's trying to get out of his parking spot, and there's snow flying everywhere, and his wheels are spinning, and he's... So I kind of run past so I don't get hit. There's a couple guys out in the parking lot and a, and a truck with a blade on it. So he, uh, he kind of finally, you know, back and forth and back and forth, and he gets moving. And uh, I get across the street to wait for the bus. And uh, I, it was a long wait for the bus, and I was pretty wet by the time the bus got there. But I'm standing there watching him. And he's spinning, and he gets out into the parking lot, and then he comes around to get out onto the, the side street. I think it's Beresford. And he gets stuck getting in onto the street. And then he backs up and he goes ahead and he backs up and he goes ahead and he gets out onto the street and then he spins sideways and he's sideways across the street and then he has to get out and he's kicking snow out and somebody stops to give him a push. And he kind of gets straightened out and he starts ahead again and he starts sliding sideways again and he gets to Osborne, which is I think where he's trying to get to. And by then he slid sideways, his back end is kind of up against the, the fire hydrant on the side of the road. And I'm standing, this is, and I'm waiting. This has probably been 10 or 15 minutes for him to get out of the parking lot, onto the street, and out to, and I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, for your safety, for the safety of your van, for the safety of every driver on the street and everybody on the sidewalk, park that thing and get out. Because <laughs> I thought, if it takes you 15 minutes to get out of the parking lot onto the street, you're never going to get to your job site. Like, just... And fortunately, he listened to my thoughts, and he, and he did kind of get... And by then, he couldn't seem to get out onto the street, onto Osborne, and so he turned around and pulled over on the side and parked the van. And I thought, oh, okay, just leave it there. And then my bus came, and off I went to work. But I was thinking, is that kind of how our Christian life is sometimes? Do you ever feel like, you know, you're stuck in a parking lot and you can't get going and maybe I go forward a little bit and I back up a little bit and I go forward a little bit and, you know, just when I get moving, suddenly I lose control and I'm going sideways and I'm trying to get back. Well, we're talking this last few weeks about um, the book of Exodus and how God takes us from slavery to freedom and this story of the Israelites getting from where they were in slavery in Egypt, out of that slavery to head to the promised land. And it's a picture of who we are in our spiritual journey. So the the Israelites had this physical journey they're going on. They got out of Egypt, into the desert. They're heading across the desert, getting to what's now Israel. Most of us aren't on a geographic journey, but we're on a spiritual journey. And this story of the Israelites in Exodus, is a a picture for us. It's an analogy that helps us better understand what our lives are like. And, you know, I think often we are that driver trying to get somewhere, and we're skidding on the road, and what we need is a bit of course correction. We need somebody who can give us a push, who can straighten us out, who can help us go in the right direction. And we're going to look today in Exodus, we're going to look mostly chapter 15, 16, 17, and 18, and we're not going to read it all. But it's the story of the God who corrects. The God who is that God who gives us a push, sometimes pushes us back onto the, into the lane we're supposed to be going, moves us in a direction that, that 
gives us a bit of traction, pushing us forward. But most of us aren't heading toward the promised land. Probably not very many of you. Now, Heather, you're heading to Romania. So in that, I'm going to pull on that in a minute. But once in a while, there's geographic movement. If you ever get to know me, you realize that I move around a bit. I kind of am nomadic. lived in various places and followed the work where I went. But, um, but most of us, it's not geographic where we're going. What is, what is our objective? Like, where are we headed? When, when we talk about going from slavery to freedom, what's our, what does God want us to be? As a question I was asking myself. I thought, okay, what does God want from us? Like, where's our promised land? Because it's not a geographic. Well, maybe Winnipeg is the promised land. But you're here. So what is it that God wants from us? Well, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's a pretty high calling, isn't it? To be perfect. But that's what God wants. It's not a geographic state. It's a spiritual state. God wants us to go from slavery to freedom toward perfection. And he's got us on a journey. And sometimes our journey feels like it's not that direct. And sometimes our journey, we feel like we're stuck somewhere and we can't get any traction. Sometimes we feel like we've skidded off the road completely. And, and God is saying, no, I've got a plan. I've got, I'm pushing you in a certain direction. I'm trying to get you there to be perfect. So today we're looking at a God who corrects. The God who gives us correction. Who helps us get straight and headed where we want to go. And sometimes it's not straight. Sometimes God's going to, we want to go there, and we, we're heading over here. But God's got a plan for going there, which is going to bring us back. I don't know if you're watching the briar, but uh, the curling is on. Kevin's a curler. When you lay your broom down as the skip, you lay your broom down, you say, aim at this broom. But you want the rock to go where that broom is? No, the rock is supposed to go over there because it curls. That's why it's curling. But God does that to us sometimes. He says, okay, I'm going to head you this direction, but what I really want you to go is over there. But there's a reason I want you to come here first and to get there. Heather talked about, how long did you say? 13 years? You've kind of had this idea of going to Romania. You've got two weeks. You'll get a little taste of it. and then. But let me warn you, it could be dangerous. So who knows what happens after that? So, so the Israelites, they're, they're trying to get out of freedom Headed, no, the other way around. They're trying to get out of slavery and headed toward freedom. I'm, I'm reading this backwards. <clears throat> and they've, they've, Aaron told us a little while ago about um, how they, I mean, they'd been 400 years in Egypt. Joseph had come to Egypt. They brought the Israelites there. They'd been 400 years there. And as time went on, they became the slaves of the Egyptians. And Aaron told us about how God had hit the Egyptians with plague after plague after plague, and Pharaoh got harder and harder and harder, and he was not going to let them go. And finally, God hit them with what we call the Passover. The oldest son of every family, all the people, all the animals died. The Israelites picked up their stuff and started heading out, and the Egyptians, if you remember, Aaron said, you know, they're going like, please go, here, here, let me give you money, let me give you gold, take it, go, go. And so they headed out, they headed out of Egypt, they got to the Red Sea, and they're standing at the edge of the Red Sea. And here's suddenly Pharaoh had, had told him to go, and then he changed his mind again, and he said, okay, wait, I'm going to go after them. And he sends his army after them. So here's Israel on the edge of the Red Sea, 
army's coming behind them, and they're standing there, and God reaches down, separates the water, dries the ground, and they march across the dry land and get across. And they're standing on the other side of the Red Sea, and they turn around, and Pharaoh's army rides into that Red Sea, coming after them with horses and chariots and soldiers, and God lets the water go back and wipes out Pharaoh's army. And suddenly they realize that they are free. They're out of, out of slavery, and Pharaoh, even if he changes his mind again, he's got nobody left to come after them. And they're standing in the desert going, whoa, here we are. And you know what they did? They sang a victory song. And at the end of chapter 15, or near the end of chapter 15, it says, um, this is verses 20, 21, Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and rider has been hurled into the sea. So they sang this victory song. They're there. They know they're free. And guess what the people do? They start to complain. I'm thirsty. We don't have any water. Moses, what would you bring us out here for? We don't have any water. We're in the desert. And they start complaining. I don't know how that happens. But as I was reading through this the last couple of weeks, I was thinking, how many times am I like the Israelites? That God does something wonderful for me, and I turn around, and I'm mad at that car that slowed down in front of me, and is, or whatever, that I get, I forget the blessings that I've got, and I get excited about what it is that is in my way at the next moment. So in, in, uh, I think I've got this up here. Here we go, Exodus 15. We can look at it. This is the story that they start complaining. They don't have any water. Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. And they went into the desert of Shur. And for three days they traveled into the desert without finding water. And when they came to Merah, they could not drink because the water was bitter. That's why the place is called Merah. Merah means bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what do we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood, and he threw it in the water, and the water became fit to drink. I don't know what it is. When, what is the word when you're hungry and you get angry? People talk about hangry, right? I don't know what it is if you're thirsty and you get angry, but whatever that word would be, that's where they are. They're mad. They're, they don't have anything to drink. And I'm, <clears throat> I can understand that. They're three days. They've been in the desert. Obviously, they're getting thirsty. But God miraculously provides some water for them to drink. <clears throat> the first point I want to make today is that when God corrects us, <clears throat> the God who corrects, sometimes he corrects us by giving us what it is we need. It's like a little incentive. It's the carrot. And what God did is he provided what they needed. He provided water. They needed water and he gave it to them. He didn't say, you people... You don't deserve this? He said, no, you guys are thirsty here. We'll get you water. And so Moses miraculously takes this piece of wood, throws it in the water. It becomes decent water to drink, and they're happy. <clears throat> it's a positive reinforcement. It pulls us the right way. God's not a capricious God who likes to punish us. He's a God who's working on heading us in the right direction and moving us forward. And so sometimes he gives us the opportunities that we need <clears throat> to bring us closer to him. I'm going to tell you a story about something that happened to me a little while ago. Norm, you've heard this story, so you can, uh, you can uh, zone out if you want. Um, 
I, I ride the bus back and forth to work. And uh, one day, early part of February, I was waiting to catch the bus to come home. So I work downtown. I'm, I'm in a bus shelter in, on Graham. There's probably 10 or 12 of us in the bus shelter. It's one of those cold, you know, minus 20 days, and we're all standing in there waiting for the bus. And this woman comes in and sits down, and she starts complaining out loud. Complains about the police, complains about how she's trying to get into slow mission, and they're having difficulty finding her place. She's kind of just complaining. And everybody's standing there feeling a little awkward. And finally I said something to her about, so, uh, you know, have you got a place to sleep tonight? She said, well, I'm trying to figure that out. And then she told me that she'd lost her winter coat. and And so I just talked to her for a little bit. I thought, you know what, she at least deserves to be talked to. And um, it must have been the beginning of February because I'd forgotten to recharge my bus pass, so I had the money for the bus in my hand. And so we talked, I talked to her for a few minutes, and then she said, do you have any money? I thought, well, yeah, I've got three bucks in my hand. So I gave her my $3. I knew I had more in my pocket, so I thought, okay, I'm okay. I can still get on the bus. <clears throat> so I gave her my $3 and wished her well, and I got on the bus and went paid again and went home. Well, next day, I come out of work on my way home, whatever, 5.15, 5.30 in the afternoon. I uh, come into the... Thanks, Kevin. I come to the bus shelter. Guess who's in the bus shelter? And I uh, open the door and come in, and she goes, Oh, my buddy! <laughs> she said, it's, it's like an early Valentine's present. <clears throat> I said, How are you? She said, so we start talking, and she's talking to me. And then she looks at me, and she says, so we're at the bus shelter. So there's like 10 or 12 people waiting for the bus, you know, people just trying to get home. And she says, can you pray for me? Well, yes, I can pray for you. I can do that. So I asked her name. Her name is Barbara. I said, okay, I will pray for you, Barbara. And I'm thinking, okay, I'll get on the bus on the way home or at home tonight. I'll pray for Barbara. She goes, Okay, sit here next to me and pray for me. <laughs> I look around. There's 10 or 12 people in the bus shelter. Okay, so I sit down beside her. What am I going to do at that point? She takes, she takes my hand. She takes the glove off so I can hold her hand. <clears throat> and then she waits. And I thought, well, I know how to pray. I can do this. So I did. I told her, I said, I'm going to keep one eye open in case my bus comes, but I'll pray for you, Barbara. (laughs) And I prayed for her. I prayed that she would be safe and that she would be healthy and that God would look after her and would meet her needs. And I, out loud, I prayed for her. When I looked around, there was probably fewer people in the bus shelter by the time I was done. I thought, and I don't know what they were thinking. And I finished and I thought, okay, there, God. And, And he did. He opened a door for me to step into something that was outside of my comfort zone. And I prayed for her, and then I finished, and she says, okay, can you pray for my kids? I got a son in Toronto, I got a daughter in Thunder Bay, I got another daughter somewhere. So we had a second round of prayer, and I prayed for each of them. I'd never had a prayer meeting in a bus shelter before. But you know what? It was something that God presented an opportunity for me and pulled me forward in that. And it was brought out a boldness maybe that I didn't have or that I didn't think I had. But she was pretty direct, and it was... You know, please pray for me and do it now and do it out loud where we're sitting. Heather, I think about you. God has opened a door for you and he's given you that opportunity and you're taking it. 
But he pulls us ahead. Sometimes there's just, he just gives us something we need. And sometimes it's something we think we need right now, but it actually leads to something that's even more so. The other, the other story here in, uh, in um, it's in actually chapter 16 of Exodus, is the story about manna, how God provided manna. Starts in chapter, or verse 2. It says, in the desert, the whole company, just a minute, got to find it here. It says, the whole company grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, then we, where we sat around with pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. I don't know if you remember the story about the Israelites in Egypt and how they had straw to make bricks. That was their job. They were making bricks. And then the slave drivers said, okay, no more straw for you. You still have to make as many bricks as you used to make. And so they had to go out and find stubble and find straw that they could use. And somehow that, I mean, they were slaves in the bottom of the slave heap. Like they were being treated badly. And somehow in their minds, they think about, oh yeah, back in Egypt, we had these pots of food that we had. We had meat to eat. We, I don't know where that, that memory came from, but... It wasn't that great. But here they are out in the desert and they're saying, we got nothing and you should have left us in Egypt. We want to be back in Egypt. And the Lord says, chapter 4, or verse 4, the Lord said, I will rain down bread from heaven on you. The people are going to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And in this way, I'll test them and see whether they'll follow my instructions. And on the sixth day, they're to prepare what they bring in so that there's to be twice as much as they gather on other days. Manna was a miraculous thing. And somehow it's become part of our Sunday school stories and we know it as, uh, in church. But, I mean, God intervened every day. And actually, in the, at the end of chapter 16, it talks about how Moses and Aaron put manna into the Ark of the Covenant next to the staff of God, next to the tablets, because God fed them manna every day for 40 years. Every morning they'd go out, there'd be this frost on the ground, or this dew on the ground, and when it, when it lifted, there'd be something left there. They'd have to pick it up. And later on in Numbers, it talks about, I don't know what it was, but they had to grind it up, and they could bake it, or they could boil it, and they could make it into something that tasted a bit like honey or olive oil. There's different descriptions of it. But it was something that miraculously came to them. God provided that. So when they complained, God didn't say, oh yeah, you could complain and I'm going to starve you guys until you come. No, he said, you know what? I'm going to give you what you need and lead you forward, pull you ahead. Now if you read on through the story through Exodus and into Numbers, Moses gets more and more frustrated with them over food, over water, because they complain more. And eventually during the story... God gets frustrated with them too. And at one point he says, listen, you guys want meat? I'm going to give you meat. I'm going to give you meat every day until you're sick and tired of meat. And he flew quail into the camp and people ate quail. And he says, it's going to come with your nostrils. You're going to be so sick of it after 30 or 40 days. God got tired of them. But you know what? For the most part, God's correction is gentle. And he leads us in ways that we want. And he gives us what we want or he gives us what we need to pull us in that direction. So sometimes his correction isn't a smack upside the head. It's, no, you know what? I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to open the door and pull you somewhere forward. Sometimes, God's correction comes through natural consequences. 
Sometimes we end up being bit with whatever it was we did. It comes back to bite us. And the story of manna is a classic one here. Because God said, every day go out and collect the manna for that day. But don't keep it overnight. Because what happens if you keep it overnight? If you look in uh, chapter 16, starting in verse 15, when the Israelites saw this stuff that came down from heaven, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to him, it's the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what God has commanded you. Each one of you is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person to put in your tent. Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered lots, some little. And in the end, they measured it and they all had enough. But Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it till morning and it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. That was just a natural consequence. God said, here's your food. I'm going to give you more tomorrow. Don't keep this stuff overnight. Some of them kept it overnight, and guess what happened? It went bad. You know what? Natural consequences happen to us. And I know sometimes we pray, oh God, please don't do that. I was, um, I don't see Dave here. Dave Perry spoke a couple weeks ago, and he talked about his uh, contributions to the city of Winnipeg through traffic tickets. <laughs> and I was amused by that, and I thought, oh yeah, I've been there, done that. I understand. Um, but there's a natural consequence, right? You drive too fast through a, through a school zone or through a speed zone. Well, guess what? Monday after that sermon, I came home from work. At the end of the day, guess who I had a letter from? The Winnipeg Police Service. <laughs> $220 worth of natural consequences. <clears throat> ah. Frustrating. But you know what? God lets that happen. It's a bit of correction. Sometimes, and you know what? Sometimes it's minor. It's maggots. It's smelly food. It's... A traffic ticket. Sometimes it's more serious than that. Sometimes we end up with consequences that we have to live with for the rest of our lives. Actually, I heard a good story this week. My, one of my colleagues has a five-year-old. He's at daycare. And at the end of whatever playtime in the gym, they were all supposed to help clean up the balls and put them away. And him and his buddy decided not to. So they sat down, um, talked to each other while everybody else cleaned up. Teachers let them do that. They went back to the, their classroom, and in the classroom they've got a play area with toys and stuff. And the teacher said, well, said you two get to sit in the reader corner and you get one book. That's all, because I can't trust you to put the toys away. I talked to them, and the mom said to me, what a good consequence. I didn't get mad at them. They didn't say, you know, you shouldn't. they didn't do, lecture them. They just said, well, you can't put your toys away. You don't get to play with the toys. But yeah, there's a good consequence. Probably learned something from that. A little correction, right? But again, short-term consequence, not long-term. But sometimes there are long-term consequences to things we do and things we need to be, as Christians, we need to behave in certain ways. And I started thinking about this. I thought about, well, it's things that we eat and how much we eat. It's how much we drink. It's what we watch on TV, the music we listen to, what internet sites we go to. Those things, there are natural consequences to that. And as we get sucked in by the world and head in certain directions, we suddenly, we can end up paying for those. I think any of us who've um, been in a youth group or worked in a youth group or worked with youth, we know stories of couples who 
inadvertently get pregnant. Something happened. And you know what? That's a natural consequence of a choice of decisions. And sometimes a church and the family wraps around that couple and the couple grows up and the baby grows up and things turn out okay. And sometimes it doesn't go that well. But we need to think about those consequences. So to the young people here, I used to teach and I used to teach a sex ed class. And one of the things I would tell them is, you know what? Keep your pants on. (laughs) To Christian kids, I would say, keep more than your pants on. There are natural consequences, not just physical ones. There's emotional and spiritual and social consequences that come to us. And not just... The reality is those temptations don't go away when you turn 25 or when you turn 30. So adults, think about that too. And the way that you relate to other people and how we do this, how we are part of the world, I realize more and more that the magic of the internet gives us access to all kinds of information, but it also allows us to run lives that other people don't get to see. You can text people, you can send messages, you can that, that, so... So God's correction sometimes is that those natural consequences come back and bite us. And then the third one I want to talk about today is about how correction sometimes comes through others. There's this great story in chapter 18 about Moses and Jethro. I'm going to have to do this quickly. I want to read some of this to you. So now Jethro, now let's start in, uh, what verse am I starting in? And give me the next one, Steve. Verse 15, 13. Sorry, I don't have my glasses on. Next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law, Moses, saw... Oh, just a minute. I'm going to back up a little bit. Before that, the night before, Moses, Jethro had come to see him. This is his father-in-law. had come to see him. They'd met. They'd had a big feast. They'd celebrated all the good things that God had done for them. Next morning, Moses said, I got to get up early. He said, I got to do my judge job here. So he sits down. Everybody comes around him. Now, I've worked in a couple of African countries and seen this happen. I've gone. So I was working for the Canadian government, government of Canada embassy official. I get to go and meet, you know, with the minister of something or other. I go and there's a whole bunch of people sitting outside his office. Ask, what is going on here? Well, there are people from their constituency. There is cousin. There's somebody coming to get help for something, asking him if they can, you know, my mom's in the hospital, can I get a little bit of money for him, can, you know, there's this problem, there's something, and, and I think, man, how do these guys do it, I mean, they're the minister of agriculture, and yet they've got this lineup of people outside the door who want to come in and see them, well, that's what Moses has got here, so Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening, and when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what are you doing for these people? Why do you alone sit as judge when all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses said, because they come to, seek, come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. Moses' father-in-law replies, what you're doing is not good. So what's Moses think at this point? Last night we had a big party. We toasted the fact of God's victories and my leadership. You, and now you're telling me what I'm doing is not good? I'm the... I'm the one who's trying to judge between people. I'm trying to help them find God's, God's will, God's, God in their disputes. How can this not be good? And Jethro says, 
What you're doing is not good. You and those people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I'll give you some advice. And may God be with you. You must be the, the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them the decrees and show them the way to live and the duties you're to perform. But select capable men from all the people. Men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, and fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times. But have them bring every difficult case to you, the simple ones they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God commands, you'll be able to stand up to the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Jethro gave Moses some advice. And he said, you know what? Set somebody up over the tens and the fifties and the hundreds and the thousands. What do we call that? When you got like supervisors and managers and executives and deputy ministers. Victoria, what do we call that? He set up a bureaucracy. Moses set up a bureaucracy. I'm a federal civil servant. I'm a bureaucrat. <laughs> Della, Della is also a civil servant. It's biblical. He said, he said, set up a bureaucracy. You've got to have somebody who can deal with the simple problems and they move them up the, st- up the line to the next complicated one and up from there. Set up, I mean, you want people who are honest and won't be, won't be taking bribes and don't get distracted by things, but can do this. And then just the toughest cases came across Moses' desk. He didn't have to deal with all those little ones. But, I mean, it was good advice, right? Jethro said, Moses, you're going to die trying to do this, and you'll never get to what you're supposed to do, which is to lead these people into, into the promised land. But, you know, it's like us. Often we need a little bit of correction from other people. And sometimes that correction comes just in a word that they say or something. It's like a little reflection of ourselves we get to see, and you think, somebody says something like, well, you reacted kind of strongly to that. Or, I didn't expect words like that to come out of your mouth. Sometimes it's just a little glimpse and you think, whoa. Or more often, it's you hear your kids say something and you think, where did you learn that language? <laughs> our three-year-old, at some point, we were, we were driving when our son was three and, I don't know, something happened and he went, idiot. <laughs> where did he learn that? So sometimes that, that correction from other people is just a quick little glimpse and they may not even have thought about it or noticed that it was correction, but something comes back to us and we go, oh, there's something I need to correct in my life because of that. Other times, it's somebody who's seen something in us who's prayerful and thoughtful and maybe has talked to another mature Christian to say, you know what, somebody needs to talk to this person. Somebody needs to give them a little bit of correction, bring them back on track. In those cases, we need to be listening. If somebody comes to us and says something, you know, I've seen something in your life, and I think maybe God has something to, to say to you. We need to be listening to that. We need to be aware and alert to it. Actually, I was going to I was going to suggest, but we're running out of time. Last week, uh, Norm, you took some time at the end to, to get into the Spirit of God. I thought we could take some time at the end here to correct each other. We can go around. <laughs> but sorry, we don't have time for that. But that's not how it works, is it? I mean, if we were thinking there is a problem, it's our, I mean, 
if I thought there was somebody, and who does, I mean, who does our correction often? I mean, often, and sometimes it's our parents. Sometimes it's our spouse. Often it's our spouse. Could be your pastor. Could be somebody who knows you. But it's somebody who loves you and cares about you and wants to touch you and say, you know what? I think you could do better than this. And I would, where, I mean, it's not something you do lightly. It's not something you take 10 minutes at the end of the service to do, is it? I mean, it's something where if that's going to happen, Some of you were at the family forum on Sunday night at Panet Road, and we did the business meeting, and we talked about budgets and other business. But in the discussion of budgets, a gentleman got up, I think his name was John, I didn't know him, but he got up and talked about how he thought the budget was not balanced well between building maintenance and salaries, and he, and he talked about that. And then somebody else got up and said, you know what, you need to at least listen to this. And Kevin, I want to say, I thought you handled that well. It's difficult to manage that in the middle of a, of a big meeting, but... Clearly, John had felt something that he thought needed to be heard. And Kevin's answer was, you know what, we'll take that, we'll talk about it, and we'll come back to you, John. It's not, yeah, you're wrong, we're not going to listen to you. It's, okay, we're going to take that. And I don't know if he's right or not, and that's up to the leadership to determine. But he made a comment, and it's up, I mean, the leadership said, I will, I'll, we'll take that and look at that. I was at a workshop a couple weeks ago. It was a two-day workshop, and the morning of the second day, the woman who was leading it got up and she said, I want to thank a couple of people who came and talked to me last night. And they were offended by something I said yesterday. And I want to thank them because they came and talked to me and I had to think about how I said it. And she said, it wasn't easy to take. But she said, I'm thankful that they did that because it came from a good place and I needed to hear it. And I sat back and thought, wow, you are, that's exceptional. Because usually we get defensive, right? I don't want to hear that. You know, what about you? You're the one who... Whereas God's correction sometimes comes through other people. Puts us back on track because somebody said, you know what, I see you're skidding off the road here. So three points that we covered today. One is sometimes God's correction is just an incentive. It pulls us in a direction to get us moving forward. Sometimes God's correction is the natural consequences of what we do. We end up with maggots in our food because we didn't do what we were supposed to do with it. Sometimes it comes through other people. It's just that somebody comes alongside of us. Sometimes just quickly just says something, but other times comes alongside and says, you know what, there's something you need to work through here. Something you need to straighten out. And I don't know where you are, if you're stuck in the parking lot right now or you're skidding down the road or if you feel like, you know what, God's pulling me in a direction. But we have a prayer team here who would be happy to pray with you today if you feel like you need to get back straightened out, or maybe you're the person who's seen something in someone else, and you feel like, you know, maybe it's my place to step up and say something to them. I would recommend you get prayer for that too, that you say, you know what, before I go sticking my foot into something I shouldn't, let's talk to God about that. So I would invite you, the prayer team is here after the service, if you are feeling you need prayer, please... Uh, Take advantage of that. God is a God who corrects. Not because he's mean, not because he doesn't like us, but because he's trying to take us on a direction. Make us perfect as he is perfect. Sometimes that correction is not fun. Sometimes it takes some time to kind of undo something we've done. But God is a God who loves us and corrects us. So as we go into our week this week, I encourage you to listen for God's correction. 
Is he talking to you? Through one of these, maybe even through something else. Is he trying to get us back on track and headed in the right direction? He is a God who corrects. 